Brothers and sisters, my name is Michael Bandick. I'm currently from Fulton, Missouri. The title of my remarks today is Shalom, the Unwanted Doctrine, Part 2, Loving the Kingdom Now. I call Shalom the Unwanted Doctrine because our carnal mind and our carnal ways and our flesh will resist the things we must do to forge shalom amongst us. The kind of shalom amongst us the Bible requires us to have. Not just peace, not just the absence of conflict, but wholeness and functionality. And sometimes restitution if something's gone wrong. This part is called loving the kingdom now because there's more of a focus on applications between us. So I'd like to tell you where I fit in. I hope this makes sense. I'm convinced after the beautiful sermons I've heard so far that I'm just a color commentator. Uh, if you don't know what that is, if you're not into sports, on the, the left of your screen there's, uh, there's Vin Scully, one of the great sportscasters uh, of all time, doing baseball. And to his right is a fellow named Joe Garagiola. And if you look it up, he had a, an amazingly average career. I mean, he was kind of, kind of below average. But he had such a sparkling personality, he did color for the sportscaster. The main guy, Vin Scully, would tell you the play-by-play, all the important things going on, and uh, Joe Garagiola would give you color, commentary, insights. That's all I'm doing here. I feel like I'm just a color guy. We've had terrific sermons as of late about integrity, overcoming fear, and healthy relationships. So, yeah, I'm just, yeah, after the smoke clears, the dust settles, the, the, the base runners called out or safe, then a guy like me and Joe Garagiolia will come in and say, here's what was going on there. Here's some additional things to think about. There's an expression I often use, just to be clear, I want to make sure you know what I mean by that. When I say in my experience... It speaks to what I have seen myself, me. Like, I I went through it. If I talk about something I've observed, it means I have witnessed it amongst others with my own eyes. And finally, my research means that uh, I've learned it from others, either through reading or talking to people. Often, the information I gather comes from interviewing people. Now, what's my motivation for this? It occurred to me that... uh, um, this, these pair of sermons, part one and two, are actually a personal statement. <clears throat> and I'm a little uncomfortable with that because I do not want to abuse this privilege of speaking up here. I don't want to abuse the microphone, the lectern, the podium, none of it. The assembly is not a giant canvas on which I can splash whatever I want to do, think, or talk about. It's got to be biblically based. It's got to be pertinent. Sometimes I've talked about my biggest disappointment. The biggest disappointment in my life is how there's so much evil out there. Here I'm already saved. I'm on this side of Jordan. I'm sanctified. And yet still the consequences of other people's sins fall on me. I realized recently that that was actually the essence of my load dump presentation in part one. We're going to review that some. That has been the biggest disappointment of my life. That I hear I'm, I'm, do, I'm trying to be good, trying to do the right thing, but other people's sins create all this splash on me. You know, it's costly, it's time-consuming, it's an aggravation. But the second disappointment, and that actually speaks to part two. I didn't plan it that way, but to be honest with you, the second biggest disappointment of my life, who knows, but it may be the first. I love my fellows dearly, all of you. I know some of you more than others. But according to the scriptures, it has been my pleasure to love you dearly. I love you sacrificially. But I'm not convinced that all my fellows love each other as much as I love them. I have reason to believe that there are parents who feel this way. Uh, I've noticed that the hearts of parents will rise and fall with the welfare of their children. But I have evidence, just from observation, not first-hand experience, that it tears up a parent inside when they see their children fight. And they see their children not get along. 
or their hearts grow cold toward each other. The picture there is the, Nor- and the, the image on the slide is the Norwegian Chamber Orchestra. And even though they're all Norwegian, they still look pretty diverse. If you see their videos on YouTube, it's just a bunch of people dressing casually and having a blast. They look like a bunch of down-to-earth people just making beautiful music together. I thought that was a fitting image to put there because that's what we must be. A bunch of sweet and beautiful people making beautiful music together, no matter how different we are. If you look at videos of orchestral recordings, videos of them from the past, you'll see it's all white men in suits. It's so funny. They look so, it's all white men in suits. But today's orchestra's got people from all around the world and all genders. To me, it's just thrilling that Yahweh can take people that are different but similar and put them together and make them one whether it be an orchestra, a band, or a fellowship, or a body of Messiah. Here's a question that has haunted me for many years. Yahshua talks about throwing a party. He calls it a banquet in some of the translations. He says, if you're going to throw a party, don't invite your friends. Well, I've had parties and invited friends. You have too. Yahshua says, don't do that. Invite the poor, the sick, the lame, and the blind. That's a, lot, that's a lot to do. I claim to be his disciple. What's the closest I've ever come to that? Well, I might visit somebody in a nursing home. But as far as throwing a party? Now here's a question. If I was to throw a banquet for the sick, the lame, the poor, the blind, and, all, and the afflicted, I got them all in one room. But they get along with each other. That concerns me. As far as that thing in Isaiah 58, to take the poor which are cast out into thy home, and that other thing Yahshua said, throw a party for the sick, the lame, the blind, and the afflicted, and all that. To me, that's that's top drawer. And I can think of a lot of excuses not to do that. Yahshua is telling us to go out of our way to expend extraordinary effort to make them know that they're wanted and loved. Before we get to that top step on the stairway, we ought to make sure we have real powerful shalom amongst us. We'll be exploring some of the barriers between us and that kind of shalom. I'm going to do a review of part one. Part one was called Your Load Dump. For those of you who weren't here and those who were here, this is, this is an important review. You can always go back and get the whole thing by going on the archives. Hallelujah. But I gave this not too long ago. I wanted to develop insights for applying Matthew 18 and Leviticus 19 to resolve differences amongst us. But participation in these processes is difficult for certain, a fraction of us, who are partially crippled by a troubled past. As I worked at the stuff that wound up in part two, I thought, oh my goodness, we got these people who come to us and they're very damaged. So let me back into this by taking some um, examples from real life that we would all agree on. We We humans are prone to load dump everything that's inconvenient in our lives. Losses, debts, work, duty, even guilt. We like to dump it on somebody else. The original load dump was Adam and Eve. Adam says, the woman you gave me presented that fruit to me and I ate it. So here Adam blames Yahweh and his wife. Eve blames the serpent. It is so powerful before heaven. You must know this now to go to Yahweh or those you offend and say, I own this, I did this. Here's exactly what I did and I was wrong. Would you forgive me? There's so much power in that. The tongue has the power of life and death. Well, that's a great way to put your sin behind you. 
The priest Aaron was another pathetic case. He blamed his actions on the people and on Moses' long stay in the mountain, and he even blamed the fire. Moses comes down and says, what's going on here? And Aaron says, well, the people were looking for some action, and um, you were kind of late coming back. We, we thought you'd be back sooner, and I threw the jewelry in the fire, and this calf came out. That was a pretty pathetic case. King Shaul didn't do much better. He did a presumptuous sacrifice, strange fire. Just because Samuel was running late, in his eyes, Samuel was running late, and the people wanted some action. So Shaul blamed, King Shaul blamed Samuel for not coming when he expected him, and he blamed the people. So much better off taking these things onto yourself. Another example of low dump is federal government debt. Right now, all our kids have about $172,000 worth of debt on their backs. Next time you see a picture of illegal immigrants stampeding across the southern border, they think they're going to the land of milk and honey. They don't know every one of them is going to have $172,000 on the average debt on their back. Who dumped that on them? And there's talk of even more load dumping along those lines. There's all kinds of load dumps. Corporate law allows a corporation to benefit from the profits of an enterprise. But if they fail, they can walk away and many of the people to whom they owe money are left with nothing. Drug company liability, this recent uh, two-year controversy about the vaccine. The drug companies reap all the profits, but they went crying to Congress and said, we want no liability if something goes wrong. So we're liable from all directions. We're liable if the drug doesn't work. We're, and if it, and how can I say this? As a nation, we're liable if the drug doesn't work. And if you happen to take the vaccine, you're going to suffer the consequences. Slavery is an obvious, come on, this is an obvious example of load dump, just offloading the hard work on somebody else. It is well known that the most profitable business on this planet is slavery. Industrial pollution, I could tell you stories. Then cheap foreign labor, again, taking unpleasant tasks and putting it on people at low cost. Yeah, we'll load dump everything. Low losses, losses, duty, responsibility, enforcement of rules. I don't want to enforce the rules. You go talk to them. You straighten it out. I don't want to talk to you. You talk to them. We offload our costs, our risks, our battles, dirty jobs, time losses, guilt, troubles, consequences, bad assets, debts, and even emotional pain. I want you to understand the emotional pain part is just one of many areas where people get derelict in their duty. They say, well, who can I get to do this? Who can I take care of this? But when it comes to emotional pain, it often comes out in the form of maladaptive behavior. There's pain. Here's, here's the, the, the development of this. We have an epidemic of people low-dumping their personal pain into destructive behavior. We have pain in our cities, families, marriages, institutions, and our relationships. That all goes back to sin. Often we find people who look ordinary, we find they've been wounded by events in their past. They're victims of a life-changing sin that was committed against them. Sometimes they're visited by unrelenting grief. They suffer a terrible loss early in their life. Uh, maybe a trauma from their past. And sometimes they get triggered and they, they blow up and they do strange things. Think about it with me. The nation is saturated in, uh, with pain because it is saturated with sin. If you don't see the sin going on out there, you're not paying attention. Now we have new kinds of pain. Huh? People are, are, are having children mutilate their bodies to fulfill some temporary whim. You know, I wanted to be a pirate when I was a little boy. Can you imagine them saying, okay, you want to be a pirate? We're going to take one of your eyes out and give you an eye patch. You know, I'm kind of speaking figuratively. That's irreversible. There's more pain coming for a lot of them down the line. We know that because many have said, what have I done? What have I done? The people coming to us with all kinds of troubles. I'm going to read through this quickly. People who are deeply wounded, 
will act up and act out in certain areas. After a while, it becomes like a template. Some of them go on the attack. It's a soft attack, slurs, slights, smackdowns, silent treatment, cold shoulders, snubs, gossip, manipulative remarks, provoking statements, and slander. Some of them enter into self-destructive behavior because they're wounded inside. This stuff comes out. They will find themselves wallowing in moral impurity, addictions. They can be self-willed, easily hurt or offended. They can enter into doubtful disputations with people, like always pick an argument. Rebellion and bitterness. And some go on the heart attack, H-A-R-D attack. Screaming, interrupting, blow-ups, rage, controlling attitudes. They're vengeful, can be violent, physically abusive, verbally abusive, fault-finding, and constant criticism. That stuff really hurts. I'm talking about constant behavior like this. There's some people who walk and struggle with this. Then there's defensive stunts like denial, persecution complex, dodgy answers, overreacting, evasiveness, vindictiveness, double talk, partial truths, and paranoia. You know, at any moment, any one of us could do these things, right? At any moment, any one of us could do a small number of these things. So what do you do? You apologize, get forgiven, you work harder to make sure it doesn't happen anymore. Did I put profanity on here anywhere? Take your put, put it any column you want. But any of us can fall into these, these, these sins, but we, we can think through it and say, okay, I'm sorry, I'm wrong. That doesn't happen again for a long time. But my concern has been for those people who come to us are damaged and are doing this all the time. But there's one more, and it seems to be the controlling element of them all, and it's fearfulness. We had a lovely sermon on fear yesterday. But fearfulness seems to be controlling all of these, if you think about it. So who would want this garbage in their lives? What's the payoff? There's three answers I'm offering. There's probably more. But one is, if you look at this list uh, of, of characteristics, these maladaptive behaviors, they command fear, respect, and performance from others. It also creates a license for sin. Well, think about it. I mean, this is kind of a this is kind of a cool. Hey, yeah, if I cop an attitude, blow ups, verbally abusive, people will tiptoe around me. They'll respect me. They'll listen to me. Hmm. Also, if I sin, I can use my past as an excuse. Well, I had a rough childhood. You know, that that's why I that's why I behaved that way. Sustained grief, this is one is subtle. Sustained grief can maintain a final connection to the person, place, or time for which great affection lingers. For example, if you do not adequately process your grief, instead lock into lifetime grief, there'll be sort of a sweet connection between you and the person, place, or time for which you have affection. And there's a little payoff there. And sustained grief, with its maladaptive behavior, can garner much wanted attention, which in fact is mere pity, or else begrudged attention. To clarify, answer number three, as a reason why people would not want to let go of these things, I would, I would compare it to a child who's constantly wetting his pants just because so, just he likes to get bathed. They like the attention. Well, some people excuse this behavior. They say, well, I'm just being passionate. Well, James 3, 14 precludes that. If you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, boast not and lie not against the truth. And the word for envying actually means heat. If you have bitter heat and strife in your hearts, boast not and lie not against the truth. That same word is translated jealousy, envy, and uh, zealous. Zealous, too. And so how do you know if your passion is justified? Well, it's by your fruits. Are there demons involved? The answer is to a certain extent. 
This wisdom, in the next verse, James says that this wisdom descends not from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish. And when you behave that way, whether you've got these kind of problems systematically or if you're just doing it on on a rare occasion, you're inviting devils to come in and help you. James chapter 3. I urge everybody to memorize James chapter 3 because it talks about the tongue. And there's a promise there. If you control the tongue, you can control everything. Those of us who have experienced something horrible in our formative years, something that's affecting our behavior now, you have a moral responsibility to get over it. Because you are hurting people, you are thwarting Yahweh's work in your life and others. The rest of us have a moral duty to support you. Can't just abandon you. I know, I know one lady who, oh, she had uh, really bad things happen to her in her youth. She said, she put it very well. She said, you can't point to a bleeding man and say to him, hey, you stop bleeding. You can't do that to people who are hurting that much. At the same time, we who are enduring your growth out of that pathological behavior, we need to see humility on your part. Humility, which is an option for everybody, and we have to see signs of progress. We don't see signs of progress. It's very reasonable to put you out of the fellowship. Gladly, the scriptures have much to offer. Now, I'm almost done with my review of part one, but uh, let's see. The material that I gave last time is expanded if you access the full sermon, but you'll see there's some overlap between those topics and today's material. The framework for which we all will grow in sanctification is, number one, our attitude. Let nothing be done through strife or vain boasting, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem the other better than themselves. Now, we've been putting up with a whole lot of self-esteem happy talk the last, I don't know, 50, 60 years or so. I don't see an improvement out there. I don't see any improvement. All these people talking about self-esteem. The scriptures tell us to each esteem the other better than themselves. In in a true assembly of Yahweh, any one of us could stand here in the middle of the floor and know with certainty that we each esteem that person better than themselves, than ourselves. Every member should have the assurance that everybody here will esteem them, not self-esteem, esteem, respect, coming from each of us to each of the other. A built-in assumption that your feelings, your insights, your observations are more valuable than mine. Our foundational identity 2 Peter 1.4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the nature of Elohim. Yeah, that's where we're headed. That's where we're headed. You know, before he gives us these glorious assignments, he needs some assurance that we're going to be capable of doing the job. That's why Abraham was told to sacrifice his son. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Are you starting to get the picture? The path to divine nature is of humility. Satan's way is self aggrandizement, self promotion, self this and self that. I remember the first feast I kept with YRM was Baptism Day, and Elder Allen gave a lovely sermon about. The selfish way versus the giving way. The spirit was so strong in that room I could bite it. The commandment that is unwanted is in Psalm 34, verse 14. And that's the third part of the framework. Depart from evil and do good. Seek shalom and pursue it. You've got to chase it. You've got to hunt it down. And at times it's going to feel like the grease pig at the county fair. It's going to slip away and you've got to run after it again. Your carnal mind does not want this. 
As far as biblical resources for overcoming difficulties from your past, every one of us here has the non-optional decision to forgive past offenses. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Now you'll see it in a later slide. But if you fail to fulfill this, you will be handed a one-way ticket to Gehenna. You know, that rich guy went to Yahshua and said, what can, I ha- what can I do to have eternal life? Well, this is what you can do guaranteed to have eternal death. Withhold forgiveness from those who have hurt you. If you have any questions about this, you just, all you have to do is think about what Yahshua went through, forgiving his murderers. Another resource is fasting and prayer. Everything comes in subjection to fasting and prayer. If there's something you want very badly from Yahweh, fasting and prayer will get it for you. If not, he will give you the wisdom to understand the answer no. He'll give you a ton of peace if he says no. Biblical resource number two is to stand on his promises. There's bunches of them here. Psalm 9.9, Yahweh also will be a refuge for the oppressed. Psalm 34.18, Yahweh is nigh unto them that are a broken heart and save such as be of a contrite spirit <clears throat> or a crushed spirit. <clears throat> when Yahshua read Isaiah 61 verse 1, he declared the spirit of the sovereign Yahweh is upon me. Because Yahweh hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. You have the authority to go before heaven and ask the Father, I stand on these promises, I ask you to make them real in my life. And then you wait for the verification in time of this in your relationships. Psalm 2710, when my father and mother forsake me, then Yahweh will take me up. How about rejection? Are some of you dealing with rejection? It's amazing how many people have had to deal with rejection in their formative years. Ephesians 1 verse 6, to the praise and the honor of his grace wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Now I'm going to go in this in detail later on, but as part of uh, part one, I had gone through this case where someone was dealing with pain points, past offenses, trauma, abuse, and inadequacies, and they're entered into a cycle where they're load-dumping their pain on their abuse victims. Verbal abuse, physical abuse, manipulation, gaslighting, all that stuff. And the, the victim pushes back. It creates more guilt in the perpetrator. And um, thanks so much, Javon. Brother Javon's bringing me some water. It says I always need water when I'm up here. Maybe I should bring IV bags when I'm up here. I don't know. When I come up. So this guilt makes this person feel worse inside. And then they load dump some more on their victims. Now there's a way to break that cycle. And you'll be looking more at this a little later. Because it applies to many of us in ordinary situations. I'm not talking about narcissists. Okay. I'm not talking about psychopaths or sociopaths. Okay. I'm talking about people on whom Yahweh's grace has settled. That his methods will work. So this business of forging shalom amongst us. Excuse me. I was surprised to see there's an ice cube there. <laughs> like, whoa, what's that? Okay. okay. I'm going to back into this topic. I want all of you to ask yourself a question. Do you want to see that day? Do you want to live to see the day come when Yahweh's spirit is poured out with power again? I can't believe anybody would say no. (laughs) There's a picture there, a a classical painting of the apostles receiving the Holy Spirit. Well, there's many in the upper chamber experience, weren't they? Here's something you must be alerted to. You read your Bible cover to cover, or you read it with close enough scrutiny, you will find that when his spirit is poured out with power, when his Holy Spirit is very active, something else happens at the same time. His judgment is just blasts out big time. And it's a striking trend. 
So you got all these gifts and all these nice things happening. But if the people close to that are naughty, the judgments break out too. Here's some cases where uh, when you have an, uh, an enhancement of divine judgment when the power of the Holy Spirit is superactive. Abraham talks with Yahweh, Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. Moses talks with Yahweh, and the events of Exodus crush Egypt. Moses talks with Yahweh. The earth then swallows up a swath of idolaters. Do you remember that story? Joshua talks with Yahweh. Then the sin of Achan leads to the defeat of all Israel there in the book of Joshua. One guy messes up. Eliah talks with Yahweh, and famine strikes the land of Israel. In the book of Acts, Ananias and Sapphira, they lie a little bit about an offering, a donation. I think it was Peter who said, you didn't have to give us all the money you had, but you lied to, 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 to give us the impression you gave us everything you had, but you didn't. And they just dropped dead. Dropped dead because they, they, they played like some kind of church game, pretending they gave more than they did. In the book of Revelation, the two witnesses flourish in Jerusalem while plagues and judgments are heaped upon the earth. Elisha prophesies, and then Gehazi, his servant, is struck with leprosy for seeking personal gain for a miracle. Remember David in his parade, he first tried to bring the Ark of the Covenant in? A modern Christian might say they were dancing in the spirit. Then Uzzah is struck dead because he touched the ark. And then, uh, I don't have room for any more on this plate, so I just close with the fact that the messianic faith is growing exponentially and the temple is destroyed. So you want to see a resurgence of Holy Spirit power? Well, along comes with it divine wrath, divine judgment for those who who, uh, are worthy of it. In 1 Peter 4.17, it says, For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of Elohim. That's right. It starts right here. Did I just... What did I do? What did I do? I'm going to use my hand instead. Judgment starts right here. This kind of reminds me of that that passage in Ezekiel. Uh, Yahweh gives a certain angel an ink horn. Some translations say a writing kit. And his job is to go through the city and... um, Mark everybody who's grieving for the sins of the city. Do you grieve for the sins of, of the nation, the city, and all that? And it says in there, judgment starts in the house of Yahweh. If divine wrath was poured out today, would our assembly stand? Would you stand? No, really, you think... It's... I try to find an analogy, but it's hard to find one. I mean, if someone gets close to me and becomes my friend, I would probably be more hurt by those close to me than those far from me. When Yahweh then becomes more intimate with us, he's doing more and more for us and with us, he expects you to step up. Not to, not to slouch. You know, it's funny. Every time they do the um, they do the anointings up here during the feast. Every time I've asked for anointing, I got results. So I don't want to make it sound like nothing's happening. But you see, the more I've been given, the more I I should do. Right? Yahweh appeared to Solomon at the end of his life, and it says there. Yahweh was angry with him because he appeared to Solomon twice. I'd like to talk to Yahweh once. You know, I just, Solomon had twice. And he still goofed off. Let's see now, did I, did I break this thing? Okay. All right, so would our assembly stand? Would you stand? The New Covenant writings place such emphasis on brotherly love for a very good reason. It's all over the place. You're not reading your Bible if you haven't seen it. All over the New Covenant writings. Love one another fervently, earnestly, defer to one another, all this stuff. There's a very good reason why 
The New Covenant writings emphasize this because we're so lousy at it. We're naturally selfish, naturally currently minded. Let's think about Yahshua's prophecy about the sheep and the goats. Now, this is a warning to the nations. I know people like to apply it to the saints. It applies to us indirectly, and I'll show you. If you look at the passage, he's only talking about the nations. And he's telling them, look, you let me down. You, you didn't help me or meet my needs. And the goats are going to say, well, when did we see you in that situation? He's going to say, well, you didn't do it to the least of my brethren. But you notice to the sheep, he says, you did all these things for me. And some of them are surprised. They say, when did I see you? Now, here's how it works, friends. If you're doing the work and you're a disciple of Yahshua, you won't be surprised on the day of judgment. You're not going to say, well, when did I see you? You know already. You know his word. You're already his disciple. The passage there clearly says it's the nations who are before him. So here's how this works. The going... They are visited with grace to help us, to meet our needs, to do some act of kindness toward us. And they're out there. There's people out there who are not in the covenant, and they will show us kindness, do good deeds. They're going to be pleasantly surprised on the day of reckoning. Now, we can't tell them. You can't tell somebody, hey, listen, you help me, and I'll get you in. You, you can't say that. You can't be that way. All right. Some people try to game the system. Okay. But think about it. If Yahshua is this harsh with the Goy who passed up a chance to help us. And believe me, I've had this happen where Yahweh puts upon strangers grace that is unexplainable. Why did that person help me? It was it was so unexpected. Well, they're gonna be judged harshly for hardening their heart. How much more will we be judged who know better? We have the law, the testimony, the new covenant. We have Yahshua's teachings. We've got everything. And we just harden our hearts toward each other. I'm afraid you're going to get that, that railway ticket there in the right hand of the screen. You see the destination? Go straight to Gehenna Express. That's right. If you fall short of these messianic imperatives, it's a guarantee you're going to slide right into Gehenna. There's not too many things in the Bible you know for that sure, because a lot of it comes down to him weighing things out and our response, and we never have all the facts. But he's telling you, this is a ticket to Gehenna. We don't know a whole lot about Gehenna. We only have a few facts. Um, we know it has a definite end. We know it lasts at least long enough to know you're there. It's been described as outer darkness, a place of wailing and gnashing of teeth. There's nothing to indicate you want to go there. Every indication is you want to avoid that place at all costs. You don't want to go there. But it's guaranteed if you fail in these messianic imperatives. Let's take a case study in congregational justice. Tossing this up to, to learn about an important barometer I found for assessing the health of our fellowship. It's also a statement of our individual spiritual health, and that is business. Business is whatever we decide to do together, whatever, whatever it is. Well, for many years, I've heard people say, oh, I don't want to do business with brethren, Maybe you've heard that. Maybe you feel that way. I don't want to do business with brethren. No, no, no. And the face-saving reason is if something goes wrong, I don't want hard feelings. That's bad news. That's bad news. Here's the truth. Number one, I fear messing up and being held accountable for the outcome. I don't want to face the brotherhood if I do something wrong. Or the counterparty does something wrong. Maybe I'm cheated, huh? I don't trust my brother or sister to be fair. I want the option of running to Babylon's courts to secure a happy outcome for me. In other words, if I do business with someone not in the faith, I can still run to Babylon's courts, get justice. 
I discovered this is an excellent barometer of our health of our relationships, the health of our assembly, and even the framework Yahshua gives us for resolving conflicts. Number four, another reason why I would not want to do business with a brother or sister is because I don't trust the Leviticus 19 and Matthew 18 processes to resolve unpleasant outcomes. Are we going to be a strong people or are we going to be a bunch of wimps? Well, I don't want to do business with the brother. No, something might go wrong. But at the same time, you'll think, oh, maybe five, ten years from now we're going to be on the run and we're going to all be mutually supportive all of a sudden. I want you to think about it. The Amish do business with each other, don't they? The Jews do business with each other, don't they? Even hoodlums do business with each other, don't they? But we can't. Like you're on some moral high ground. Oh, I don't want to do business with brethren. I'm on a moral high ground. No, you're not. When I do business with, when I have brethren work for me, but different ways. There's brethren who are like contractors who've worked for me, and there's some who've just worked for me direct. I've paid them all I can. Um, let me get these idiots off the screen here. <laughs> I've paid them all I can. I apologize for having a picture of gangsters on the screen that long. Anyway, um, I pay them all I can. I, I urge them to take breaks whenever they want. I make sure there's cold drinks or hot drinks, depending the season. I want very much for them to know, while even though they're serving me, they are my friends and my brothers. Another thing, too, is this, is this gets kind of scary, because sometimes on a contracting job, things go wrong. Like the roofer will take off the old roof, and oh, no, he sees a lot of rotten wood. Now, some contractors lowball on a task, hoping that something like that will come up. So now they can start to balloon out the charges. Oh, look, there's something we have to add to the contract. Well, I'm already bought into this guy based on his low ball bid, his low bid. And I'm locked in, and he's, he's, he's skinning me alive to fix parts of the roof that were unseen. I don't expect my brethren to do that. In fact, if I was to engage my brethren, I'd tell them, look, there might be surprises if we come to a surprise, advise me what that extra cost is going to be. I don't want you to suffer for the unknown. Really, this is how I, I engage with people. And sometimes I'll go step by step so we can learn more about the task at hand. Because, hey, come on, guys. If you own a home, you know that you really don't own the home. The, the home owns you. And you, you, all these surprises come up. You go out back to fix a, a loose hinge on a garage door and you find out, there's a termite infestation, you know, all kinds of crazy things. And I could probably still use additional training on how to do business with the saints. That's fine with me. Our willingness to do business with brethren is a barometer of our spiritual health. All these other people out here are doing business with each other. And we can't. All parties must develop mutual trust within the fellowship and any business we do outside. This must be developed over long periods of time. You can't go running into it, throw yourself into it, and say, okay, let's, uh, let's do a bank merger next week. I mean, you, you, some, you can start with small projects, but we've got to get acquainted with each other in business. It must be done. And we have an army of supporters amongst us. It's very reasonable to go into a, a, a relationship and say, um, hey, this isn't working out like I thought. You really let me down. Yeah, that moment may come. But I'd much rather go to the brethren who are filled with Yah's spirit than to go to Babylon's courts. Leviticus 19 empowers each of us to speak up when we see a sin. I'm going to pivot now to talking about some practical application stuff. Yahshua told us the second greatest commandment is, in the, uh, is love your neighbor as yourself. Most people don't know that it is the, the climactic statement of a crucial passage. Leviticus 19.14, 
Thou shalt not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but shall fear thy Elohim, I am Yahweh. Okay, curse the deaf. Spiritually, that's related to speaking about somebody behind their back. Nor put a stumbling block before the blind. I talked about that in the last presentation. If I hire a kid in the neighborhood to mow my lawn in the back for a mere $10, but I don't tell him I have a lot of dog droppings back there, I've caused him to give a vow that he do something, and he doesn't really understand the scope of the project. By the way, I don't have a dog. That's just an example. But putting a stumbling block before the blind means, for example, selling defective merchandise. Moving on to verse 15, you shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty, but in righteousness shalt thou judge thy neighbor. Yeah, well, what's right is right. doesn't matter where you come from or your background. You shall not go up and down as a tailbearer. Here we go again. You shall not go up and down as a tailbearer among thy people, neither shall thou stand against the blood of thy neighbor. I am Yahweh. There, he states his existence. He's always there watching. You shall not hate thy brother in thine heart. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. That's where you are commanded to go to your neighbor and say to him, listen, what you did was out of order there. I don't think you should have done that. Verse 18. You shall not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Again, he says, I am Yahweh. The second greatest commandment punctuates commandments that speak to relationships. This does not merely empower you to approach someone with their sin, as I said in my slide. It commands you to speak up. It's a command. Matthew 18 empowers us to formally resolve a sin against us personally. Leviticus 19 only goes so far. Matthew 18. I'm going to go with the summary we have at the top of the page in the Restoration Bible. Number one, you go to the person who offended you. Direct. Step two, if they don't, if they don't get it, then you bring two or three witnesses. No, you, you bring one or two so that the total number of people speaking is two or three. If they still don't get it, you bring them before the assembly. Now, I've looked at that word for assembly, and um, I'll tell you how I take it, because I think we're doing it right here. It looks like it could be either the entire congregation or the assembly of elders. In Jewish tradition, they call it a Beit Din, house of judgment or a place of judgment. And I lean toward that interpretation, having seen it used elsewhere like that. And uh, it would be kind of awkward to have this stuff go <laughs> before, some of this stuff go before everybody. But this is one of the reasons why you got to have ministers who are qualified according to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. You have to have guys who are overcomers and got their lives in order. I trust their judgment on everything, uh, far more than my own judgment. 1 Peter 5.5 5 requires us to give and receive correction humbly. Likewise, you young, here we go. Likewise, you younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. All the, all the kids around here are polite to me. I know that. Yea, all of you, now this is everybody, all of you be subject to one another. That gets back to the part about esteeming one another better than themselves. And be clothed with humility. For Elohim resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. You know, when these things arise that need resolution, this is a golden opportunity to get grace. Does anybody here not need grace? If you don't need grace, you can leave. Go ahead, you can leave. Everybody needs grace. Everybody needs more grace, no matter where they're at. As we have learned elsewhere, grace is the divine influence that leads you to virtue. It's his empowering to do the right thing. In no case are we allowed to take conflicts and disagreements to the streets. Now, this is what I've seen. I've been baptized for 42 years. I've seen a lot. 
I've seen a lot. And taking it to the streets, it seems to be something in our DNA that we're required to overcome. Um, I've begged people in, in, in these situations, you got to go do a Matthew 18 process. you got to go step by step. You do it Yahweh's way, and then he's responsible for the outcome. You do anything else, he's, he's not responsible for the outcome. So sometimes I've heard people say, oh, I did Matthew 18. I called a big meeting, you know. Or I did Matthew 18. I took it to the elders. No, 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 that's not Matthew 18. You don't get to that step till the final phase. Well, the overwhelming vast majority of these things are resolved by going direct or else bringing one or two other witnesses along. The overwhelming vast majority of it. And there's additional tips coming, but one thing I, should, I didn't put in the notes. Uh, almost, I'd say a little more than half of the time, looking back in my life, where there's been disagreements between me and friends in the fellowship or even people in the world, a little more than half of the time, I'll say a slight majority of the time, it was all a misunderstanding. Total misunderstanding. A different perspective, B before A. There are times when I thought I'd been betrayed, stabbed in the back, let down, and I find out, no, I just didn't have all the facts. Take a moment to talk about Lashon Harad, to evil the tongue in Hebrew. Jewish rabbis will tell you that Jerusalem was destroyed because of this problem, the evil tongue. This is the seventh abomination in Proverbs chapter 6. When you read the first line, there's, more six, there's too many sixes in there for me. But anyway, I'm going to read it. Proverbs 6, verse 16, going to 19. These six things doth Yahweh hate. Yea, seven are an abomination unto him. A proud look, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, and heart that devises wicked imaginations, feet that be swift and running to mischief, a false witness that speaketh lies, and finally, he that soweth discord among brethren. Yep, that's the evil tongue, all right. The rabbi, if they're willing to talk to you, because you're not Jewish, they, they may hesitate to be frank with you. But they believed that the, as Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed because of the evil tongue. Um, they also include hate without a cause. Let's talk about this a little bit. Subtle innuendo, Lashon Hara. Suppose, um, i got to make up names here. Suppose Brother Joe Dokes comes to me and says, Brother Mike, I want to marry Sister Merry Christmas. And, and then I say, you're going to marry her? Now, I haven't said anything bad. Did I? Did I say anything bad? No? Didn't speak evil? Didn't lie? Didn't do any of that. But the way I inflected it, you're going to marry her? Okay, the way I said it, it implies there's a problem with her, doesn't it? So I get the benefit of making her look bad, but I, I, can, I can pretend I'm innocent. That's Lashon Hara. Yeah, I know who you're talking about, but he's, here's another one. Idle, idle mention of a person's issues. Yeah, I know that guy. He's got issues. <laughs> Nothing specific. Just, he's got issues. Now, I don't know if he's got a medical condition, a mental condition, if he's in a sin condition. I don't know anything. He's, just, he's got issues. Lashon hara. The evil tongue. Then there's the telephone game. We don't have time to set it up, but everybody's heard about this, where you, you line up a bunch of people and you have them whisper a story in each other's ear. And by the time it gets to the end, it's all distorted. All right? There's other examples, too. But uh, there's ways people can give evidence that someone's got a problem but not really talk about it. And when that happens, you have a moral responsibility to say, hold it right there. You've got to go back to that person with whatever your, your issue is and solve it according to Leviticus 19 and Matthew 18. Are we going to be a strong people or are we going to be a bunch of wimps? Are we going to be average? You know, these issues occur everywhere. 
These temptations occur everywhere. Don't think that we've been free of temptation in this area. Well, I'm calling for a reset. Anybody who's been trafficking in this, I'm calling for a reset now. No slinging, no gossiping, no blabbing, no innuendos. Let's do a reset, huh? If any of you have been doing this, reset it here. Set it here. From this moment forward, let us seek shalom and pursue it. Somebody's got a problem or an issue, it's got to be resolved. It's got to be cleaned up. And if somebody will not repent of their issue, their problem, their behavior, if they will not repent, if they don't give us evidence of progress, it's a sign of a healthy assembly to put them out. And I know for the ministry, it's very hard to do this. They don't like to do it. I know they don't. I think one of the things that compels them and, pro- and propels them is the realization that if they don't do it, it's going to hurt the rest of the sheep. As for me, if I hear any of it, I'm going to be pushing back at once. I'll be asking, did you take it to them personally? Are you pursuing a Matthew 18 protocol? If not, you've got to quiet down and get busy. If you have not done the Matthew 18 protocol, you've got to go through with that. Okay, I'm going to give you some specific tips. We're, we're uh, coming to a close here. Your safest assumption is to assume you are wrong. If you're the victim, go in there assuming you could be wrong. Philippians 2, verse 2 to 3. Fulfill my joy that you be like-minded, having the same mind, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem the other better than themselves. So many times it's been misunderstandings. You know, we've gotten really good at it here at the feast, but there were times early on in our history where we had the same things come up like I've seen at other feasts. Somebody set something down, then somebody moves it, then another person moves it farther, and then somebody says, oh gosh, that's just a, that's nothing, I'll throw it away, or I'll put it in the pantry, or whatever. It's all these misunderstandings. (coughs) You just assume, it's usually safe to assume you're wrong to some level. Number two, taking risks. You may find that one or both of you are wrong. I got a roulette wheel there that comes up on zero. You may find that one or both of you are wrong. It's a possibility. The stakes are actually very high, though, in terms of rooting out sin amongst us. You have to fear Yahweh, not man. You're going to have to take risks. Now, as an example in the Bible, there's a guy named Phineas who took action. He took real action. What happened is the king Balaic sent Moabite prostitutes into the Israelite camp. And Phineas chased a couple into their tent and killed them with a a spear. And Yahweh counted it to him as righteousness. Now, I'm not proposing we run around with spears, but I do take that as an indication Yahweh takes this seriously. The sin of Achan affected the whole camp. A little leaven affects the whole lump. Let's talk about taking risks and being wrong. I'm going to be frank with you because even though the scriptures empower us to speak up, there are times when you're going to speak up and you'll find you're wrong. Um, let's see if I give you, I'll give you two examples where I was wrong. Um, one Sabbath, well, it was one Sabbath, it was kind of late in the Sabbath. One of the sisters was furiously washing dishes in the kitchen. Well, we don't do that on Sabbath. So I went to her. I, I, had to, I had to make sure I was sweet and kind. You've got to be nice about it. And I says, we, we don't do dishes here on Sabbath. And it turns out I was wrong. It turns out we have a tremendous, we, at that season, we had a tremendous problem with ants. We had to take, everything was being infested with ants. Okay, and so there was a, a rational basis for doing that, all right? The other one just happened last night. One of the sisters was vacuuming at the end of the, of the Sabbath, and I come out of my room thinking it was still Sabbath. And I says, are you sure it's not still Sabbath? Are you sure about that? Are you sure about that? Well, it turns out Sabbath had ended several minutes prior, but I was wrong. And it's a possibility when you speak up, you're going to be wrong. That's another reason to be nice about it. See, you might be wrong. 
There's nothing in there for us to speak in terms of, in, a, in, in the theme of wrath. There are cases, I suppose, where you got to speak up. Whoa, whoa. But most things can be handled by just assuming you could be wrong. But we can't be afraid to speak up. Another tip is to embrace a spirit of complete openness. Here's been my commitment for many years. This might not be possible for all of you. But I'd like you to really consider it. You all have the... um, but go ahead for me to approach me with anything. Approach me anytime. The worst that happens is I'm busy. I'll never cop an attitude. If I do, it may be because I'm sleep deprived. But I, I really welcome you all to approach me with anything. And you can ask me the same question countless times. I will never lose my patience if you ask me the same thing over and over. Yahweh repeats his laws a number of times in the Bible. In an age in which we are not reading emails, not reading texts, not listening to voicemail, I welcome anyone who is seeking clarity from me. I remain willing to discover even more areas in which I am wrong. I don't want to blow it. Just as Jacob didn't want to lose that blessing, that's how I feel. I don't want to lose it. Now we go back to James chapter 3, which I quoted uh, quite a bit earlier. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And there's the payoff. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace, that make shalom. I'm focusing on the word entreated, easy to be entreated. I've got to be approachable. Every one of us has got to be approachable. We're not here to condemn or destroy anybody. The only thing you should fear is Yahweh. We don't want to let him down. When you get a chance, read uh, Romans 7, and you'll find that once you decide you don't want sin, now it's just something inside of you you want to get rid of, like indigestion or a, a, you know, a wound that's got to heal. It's, it's, you don't want that anymore. And so now we're just partnering to... Present each other before Yahweh as whole. Another tip is to embrace those who are different than you. The world is full of people who look different, talk different, smell different. Some of them are slow in social graces. Above all, for this list here, above all, do not run from those in trouble. It says do not run from hoes in trouble. I'm sorry. Do not run from those who have troubles. Sometimes you got to swallow hard and just be with them. I will not, I do, may Yahweh give me the grace. I don't ever want to run away from trouble or people who are in trouble. Do you honestly think Yahshua would shun someone because of social standing, dress, ethnicity, their personal troubles? How about their health? You think Yahshua would say, oh, he's sick. I don't want to talk to him. You think Yahshua would do that? Okay, I went through this, this cycle of um, pursuing shalom. And uh, this will be the last module, I, I believe. There are some people who are very afflicted with pain points. They have past offenses, trauma, abuse, inadequacies. And they get in this cycle where they're abusing people, and then the, the abused victim pushes back, and then the abuser has guilt, and then they have more turmoil, and they do more load dumping of their pain. And they have to break that with reconciliation and confession. You break the cycle. Well, this, these steps apply to every situation where we have to apply. When seeking shalom with the victims of your sin, you should have no agenda except for forgiveness. There should be no... I'm going to be repetitive now, but it's tempting to say, oh, I'm going to make peace with that family so I can borrow uh, their lawnmower. Um, I'm going to make peace with that lady so I can have another chance at her. I'm going to make peace with that girl so she gives me another chance. Or um, I'll make peace. I'll apologize to that rich guy hoping he'll loan me money. You can't have an agenda. The the only thing you should be seeking is shalom, a restoration of the relationship. Be articulate and clear about the offenses you want cleared. James 5.16 says, confess, acknowledge your faults one to another. You don't use wheels of words like, I'm sorry you feel that way. Or, I'm sorry I hurt you. Or, I regret the whole thing. 
You've heard that stuff. I'm sorry if I offended you. You renounce each offense by name. He that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesses and forsakes them shall have mercy. Proverbs 28, 13. If you have offended someone, it's been brought to your attention. Sometimes you didn't even know you did it. But you've got to own it and declare it and renounce it. Are we going to be a strong people or are we going to be wimps? Number three, you go direct. I really, I really don't like this when I see these, these wimpy, rubber-legged apologies. Uh, Matthew 5.24 says, leave your gift at the altar and go your way and be reconciled. You're not supposed to use cheap, lazy, non-interactive cop-out methods. This rules out text, email. You don't do messaging. You don't use rumor. Oh, um, Willie Billy over here said he's sorry. You don't go through other people. Letter writing, voicemail, sky writing, none of this stuff is proper. You're supposed to go direct. Now, if there's a geographical distance, you can use a phone or a Zoom or Skype or something. But you have to go through the process of engaging that person and heart to heart to untangle the, the mess that you're in. Take ownership of your sin. Don't even think of mentioning your own pain point. You're not supposed to say, um, I'm sorry I swindled you like that. Um, I had my bike stolen when I was a kid, and I still can't get over it. You know, you, your victims don't want to hear that stuff. They're concerned about their pain and their loss. And it's for your benefit that you come clean. You don't even energize or awaken those evil things from the past with your voice. Don't give those things any breath, spirit, voice, talk, power, nor remembrance. You are taking care of those things by praying through those promises mentioned earlier. Mentioning your own troubles mingles pity with forgiveness. You don't want pity for what you did. You want forgiveness. Another reason not to um, put it in writing is because you want to expunge the record of your sin. You don't want to document it. Don't talk about, I had a troubled past, I knew I was abusive, but I was abused too. This is hard for me. I'm struggling through this. No, own your sin, confess it, renounce it, ask forgiveness. And boy, you'll, you'll see your heart dance. Note the payoff, James 5.16, confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Hmm? I want to see more healing. This is a stepping stone to healing. Through James, Yahweh reveals that we can tame the tongue. We can control everything. I urge you to tame your tongue and commit James chapter 3 to memory. The strong people we are intended to become can only be achieved through seeking shalom and pursuing it. At times, it will be painful. I saw a t-shirt that's, that said, um, it's for a bodybuilder. It said, pain is weakness leaving the body. You know, I guess that works for our soul too. Philippians 3.10 and verse 14, um, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of Elohim and Messiah Yahshua. Thank you for your kind attention, friends. I love you all now. <laughs>